Welcome to The Returning Citizen. Quick reminder that anytime we mention a program or resource, it's linked under this episode on thereturningcitizen.org, where you can also listen and subscribe. And we want to uh, let our listeners know, uh, remind you all, that the U.S. has the highest rate of incarceration of any country on Earth. Most of these folks return home as our neighbors, with 10,000 ex-prisoners released from state and federal prison every week. Needless to say, everybody wins when we help these returning citizens be successful. I'm Jacob Evans-Smith, a Detroit-based entrepreneur and community organizer. I'm Ryan Nico, a St. Louis native and voice artist who has fallen in love with Detroit. I'm Eric Burgess. I served 18 years in Michigan prison for a nonviolent crime. And my passion is to use this platform to assist other returning citizens. And today we are talking about drug crimes and overcoming addiction. So for some quick context, uh, according to prisonpolicy.org, one in five incarcerated people is locked up for a drug offense, uh, with 450,000 incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses at any given time. Um, so today we're going to be diving into uh, that, how this impacts um, so many lives and, and uh, how folks uh, deal with both addiction and transitioning um, back into uh, society uh, after, after serving their time. Um, we're here joined by a very special guest, Ed Cressy. Uh, Ed is a Massachusetts-based writer, speaker, and volunteer whose work serves addicts and people with criminal histories. Um, and for some quick uh, background on Ed, uh, he himself has experienced addiction, uh, clean since 2007, go Ed, uh, and has spent some time uh, in and out of jail as well. Um, so he's coming at this with some firsthand experience. Um, and on that note, uh, I want to go ahead and kick it off by asking you, Ed, uh, kind of what brings you to this conversation here today? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Jacob, Brian, Eric. Wonderful to be here. Very impressed by your amazing work and grateful for this opportunity to contribute. I am almost certainly the only person ever who was once arrested by the FBI, then recognized with a community service award by the FBI director. I'm very fortunate that of all the incredible help I received to turn my life around from one of addiction and criminal activity, some of the most meaningful help came from our sisters and brothers who are or were incarcerated and from the women and men who work in law enforcement. I've become a trusted servant to both law enforcement, helping them better serve the returning citizen community. I'm also extremely fortunate to serve the reentry community as a volunteer. And again, very grateful to be talking to the three of you today. Absolutely. And then just to, to dive a bit deeper. So uh, exciting news is that you have a new book published, which is really fantastic, called My Addiction and Recovery. Um, and for those that uh, do purchase the book and dive in, you'll know that uh, Ed had, had uh, it sounds like your entire life, uh, pretty much your entire kind of adult life, you wanted to be a writer. Um, needless to say, a few obstacles popped up along the way. Uh, but I wanted to kick off by just asking, how does it feel to be a published author? It feels like the culmination of a childhood dream, which it is. It's a beautiful feeling. Looking back, I realized I wanted to publish a book for things like recognition, reward, being famous. These were my reasons for wanting to publish a book. What happened was I was able to publish a book as a means of being of service to others. That is far more rewarding. That is what really motivates me to not return to a life of addiction and criminal activity, but more importantly, lead a meaningful life. And that meaningful life is one of spirituality and one of service. That's beautiful. And I was just curious, um, kind of playing off of that, like for, for uh, what do you hope for folks that do pick up the book? Uh, what do you hope that readers uh, take away? Readers get a sense of some of the root causes of addiction Readers get an idea of the, uh, oftentimes in your city or town in America and elsewhere in the world, 
you'll walk past a person who you can get the feeling right away is struggling with addiction. You'll go past a person who's having screaming matches with people who ain't even there. You'll see a person who's been wearing the same clothes and not showered or, or brushed his teeth or her teeth for months. I was that person. That was me. So when you walk by that unfortunate individual, maybe you're wondering, how did circumstances conspire to get that person where she is or he is? Hmm. My book answers those questions for you. As a reader, you also get a sense of the potential for criminal justice reform, especially as it involves law enforcement getting on board with being a better service to the reentry community. You get hope for overcoming obstacles in your own life and certainly for the lives of your loved ones who may be struggling with addiction. That's fantastic. And uh, having, having a chance to read the book myself, I can just very confidently recommend uh, to everyone, uh, kind of no matter what your situation, um, I was very inspired to, to read your story, um, to just kind of watch your trajectory. I do not have a lot of experience hearing kind of firsthand accounts with, uh, with addiction and different things. It was very eye-opening for me. So thank you so much for uh, being so vulnerable and for um, communicating your, your story in such an honest way. Really amazing. Thank you. Um, and, and while we're on the top, so we, we want to get into uh, in just a moment kind of into the uh, what kind of broke down and, and how folks can really pull lessons away. Uh, but before we do that, just while we're talking about the book, um, Ed, you had mentioned to me in a previous conversation uh, that, you know, you have some, some uh, creative ideas for how to get this into folks' hands. And I was wondering um, if you could elaborate on kind of your vision for how, to, uh, how, how you plan to get the, the word out about the book. We've been fortunate to have donated 450 copies to incarcerated persons with more donations on the horizon. 10% of the book's profits go to Defy Ventures, which is a nonprofit that delivers entrepreneur and employment training to currently and formerly incarcerated men and women. I myself graduated from Defy Ventures program, worked for the organization, continue to volunteer for them. That's one way that the book is being of service. I learned, you know, I, I learned the most when I, I only served a, a brief time in, in jail. I served a total of about two and a half months. And some of it was uh, locked up in the psych ward because I selfishly sp uh, smoked so much methamphetamine that I went into a form of psychosis. The, what's different about my story in some ways is that I grew up as your basic uh, PWM, right? Privileged white male. That was me. I mean, my life wasn't perfect, but I had many opportunities, unfair opportunities bestowed upon me by our society because of the fact that I'm white, I'm a male, and my socioeconomic status was higher than most people. I committed many, many felonies before I finally got busted for a felony. I was only, I was 33 by the time I, I got arrested. I was actually, yeah, 34 when I got busted for a felony, yet I, I had broken the law and committed many, many felonies before then. Uh, what, what, one of the beautiful things I found through my work with returning citizens and persons who are currently incarcerated is that whereas I used to harbor this belief that I was somehow better than people who serve time, or at least my decisions were better. I really believed that. I thought, you know, I, I never serve time because I make better decisions. That was really my attitude. When returning citizens and incarcerated persons accepted me, when they shared their stories with me in a, an honest spirit of mutual respect, I learned that what that our similarities are greater than our differences. I learned that the reason I'm on this side of the prison walls is because of these unfair advantages society gave me. These things sound obvious to say, but if for someone like me who grew up with these unfair advantages, it's different when you live it. And I got a chance to live it. That's why I'm so grateful. That's one reason I'm so grateful to our sisters and brothers who are serving time or have served time, who allow me to serve them because as much as I may help them, which is, is hopefully to some degree, they help me much more. 
that's one of many things that my 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 relatively brief time incarcerated and certainly my past five or so years of contributing to criminal justice reform has taught me. So Ed, during your, I mean, in the past, your, can we speak to your addiction in that, like you've just said some things that are pretty powerful regarding, you know, your socioeconomic status and who you are or who you, being a white male in society. So technically, you know, in this ideal world, you're not supposed to be addicted, right? So can you speak to the misunderstandings or misconceptions about addiction that would make people overlook you or, you know, count you out as an addict or recovering addict? The chief misunderstanding around addiction that I've found is that drugs for the addicted person are not our problem, right? Drugs are our attempt at a solution. Our problem may be any number of different things. My problem was I hated myself. My problem was I was always that bullied kid afraid to stand up for himself on the, on the playground. My problem was that I was a, a coward and I pumped myself up with alcohol and drugs. My problem was that I never felt that I fit in with the world around me. My problem was that I tried to project an image of a good person, yet in my mind, I harbored racist beliefs. I harbored judgments against others. Really, it was a negativity I felt towards myself that I projected onto the world around me. I put up all these facades. I put up a facade of being a kickboxer. I put up a facade of being uh, a, a, a corporate employee. And I mean, I actually did these things, but the things I would do, I did more to create a false story about myself, that I wasn't addicted, which I was. I spent 20 years as an addicted person. So what I found is that when we use drugs or alcohol or any number of addicted behaviors as solutions, it makes it very difficult to leave that behind. Because when we quit drugs, as an addicted person, it makes things worse. It makes things, at least initially. So the, what's the intuitive solution to addiction, quit drugs, is actually, it actually makes things worse. Even when I was using drugs, I, in my mind, I thought, you know, when I'm ready for everything to be okay, I'll just quit drugs. I'll, you know, I'll quit. It's, it made sense to me. It made sense to those around me. Really, quitting drugs makes things worse because now we've let our solution go. For me, the solution to my problems got to be spirituality, which manifested in the life of service that we were talking about. And uh, just to, to offer a, a quick quote from, from your book here toward the center, uh, you, you said, you know, training, training 15 hours a week at Muay Thai, not something a drug addict would do, right? Therefore, if I train that much, I must not be a drug addict, or so I convinced myself. So I think it's interesting, adding on to what you just said, that like, it's not just that you were putting on a facade for others. It's almost like you were putting on a facade uh, to convince yourself that you didn't have a problem as well. That's a great way to put it. And if you have someone, the, the phenomenon of addiction is very complex. If you see someone who parties a lot and then works a lot or gets in the gym all the time, if a friend of yours or a loved one is engaging in addictive behavior, and then seeming to counterbalance it with something like a career or fitness or any number of things, it may well be that the person is trying to convince herself or himself that addiction is not a problem. That's it's like a seesaw. You know, you're always trying as an addicted person. We're always trying to balance that seesaw. We got the partying, the drugs, the the whatever it is on the one side, and we have the career and the, the, the whatever else it might be on the other side. The insidious thing is, it, it, is addiction as a solution. It works. It worked. For me, it worked for you know, 15 years before my, my addiction really started taking me down. Yet when, a, when drugs fail as a solution, they often fail catastrophically, which is what happened to me and which is what happens to many others. So in particular, was there, like taking your seesaw analogy was there a moment for you that you can recall where you couldn't push back up and is, is 
the reality of that? What made you turn? Like, was there a turning point because you were so low or how did that work out for you? There were many such turning points. I was too deluded to take advantage of them. Most times I remember one time I was in a homeless shelter. I didn't spend a lot of time homeless, but I spent a few nights in homeless shelters. There was this big outdoor area where people would smoke <coughs> cigarettes. An enterprising young man was selling Marlboros for 25 cents. I had three quarters in my pocket. I gave him one as I was smoking my cigarette. I realized I had just spent one third of my entire net worth on a single cigarette. That was an aha moment for me, yet I failed to take advantage of it. I went back into addiction. My, the, the real moment came for me when I, was, I, I hadn't showered or brushed my teeth for months. I was living in this flophouse hotel that was evicting me. I had been hearing disembodied voices and believing in FBI conspiracies targeting me to try to pin 9-11 on me. For, for years, this had been my life. I was toting a 357 pistol as protection against people I thought were after me. These, th this had been my life. One night, I, I, I wore about the only clothes I had was this filthy tuxedo. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but I'd been working in the strip clubs. And to be fair, the strip clubs had given me a good opportunity. They gave me a chance and a job. And boy, I made them pay for giving me that opportunity. <laughs> I, was a, I was a terrible employee. They, they fired me and rightfully so. Still, I kept a tuxedo in a fancy San Francisco hotel ballroom. I found myself outside the, the threshold of a wedding reception. There was a wedding reception. I, I, in my filthy tuxedo, think, oh, you know, I'll crash the reception, you know, blending in. Maybe someone will think I'm a groomsman or something because I'm wearing a tux. At that moment, it struck me that in the previous few years, five couples had gotten married. They were 10 of my closest friends. I'd been invited to all the weddings. One couple had asked me to serve as their best man. And Ryan, do you know how many of those weddings I showed up to? No. Zero, yeah, not, not one, not one. It, this is a point where I realized I had, how much I had hurt not only myself, but I had hurt others through my selfishness and my sinking into addiction. And that was the last day I ever used meth. Yeah, so so let's uh, let's talk about that. So last day you used meth. Um, how did you? What was that turning point? How did you finally get clean? Uh, and I think more importantly, how how do you stay clean? I imagine uh, I've never been in that situation personally. There's got to be a pull that you feel sometimes, or something that uh, triggers that same uh, you know mental connection in your brain. Um, so so how how do you uh, go about that? Um, you know, continuing to this day, having been clean since 2007. God, God is, is how I stay clean and how many of us do. God comes in many forms. One of the definitions I like the best is that anything of a non-material nature, we can consider spiritual. Spirituality means different things to probably every person who practices spirituality. For me, I got to the point where I had almost nothing left of a material nature. I mean, I had my tuxedo and that was about it. I, I had no choice other than to pursue spirituality. For some of us, it's organized uh, religion, faith-based. And I'm, I myself am a member of a faith-based community. I think they're awesome in many respects. For some of us, spirituality is the practice of gratitude, the practice of service, for some of it's, uh, it's running triathlons. Whatever your definition of spirituality is, that's what works best for you. If we can pursue a spiritual path, if we can pursue a path of service to others, the, I, I like to think of uh, the Dalai Lama. And when somebody asked the Dalai Lama, what's the best religion? The Dalai Lama responded, the best religion is the one that makes the practitioner the best person, right? Whether it's, whether it's Buddhism or, or Christianity or Judaism or some different form of, of spirituality, whatever we pursue of a, a higher purpose that makes us a better person, that is what will lift us out of addiction or at least give us the 
one of the best chances because remember, drugs aren't our problem. Drinking's not our problem. Gambling's not our problem. Those are our attempts at a solution. We need a better solution. Often that better solution comes in the form of a spiritual pursuit. So when you talk about your spiritual pursuit as an addicted person, you, you mentioned though, before that you mentioned gratitude and like there, I think is an art behind gratitude, but it's interesting that you can find gratitude in some of like the darkest quote unquote, ugliest situations. What would you say you can be grateful for as an addicted person? As a person who is actively addicted? Yeah, like, yes. How, how did you find, or what gratitude did you find in that situation to keep you clean? It's so, oh, one, well, once I got clean, it was, I was always a very selfish person and I was a person who never appreciated or rarely appreciated the opportunities that I was given. For me, when I immersed myself in community service, when I began volunteering, I learned very soon after I got clean off meth that I have to do something to serve others. I would volunteer any opportunity I could find. Uh, SPCA, the soup kitchen where I used to eat, I would volunteer and serve meals. I volunteered for the Red Cross. I volunteered for the fire department as a first responder. Anything that could take me out of myself by being of service. That was how I practiced gratitude because in my selfish mind, it was hard for me to think thoughts of gratitude. My mind was always tuned to how are other people letting me down? My mind was always tuned to who's out to get me, who's fixing to do me wrong. For me, a big part of my addiction was the belief that if you treated me poorly, I resented you. However, if you treated me well, I resented you even more because <laughs> I knew the real me. I thought either you had to be stupid for treating me well, or you had to be out to get me with an ulterior motive. It was my thinking. It was my negativity that was directed, that, that was directed at me. It was directed at the outside world, but it stemmed from, again, the fact that I was a, a privileged white male. I didn't know this at the time, but looking back, I realized I, I knew all along I was a privileged white male, yet I was using my priv privilege in selfish ways, consuming massive quantities of drugs, material possessions. And there's nothing wrong with material possessions. The way I was treating my material possessions, that was wrong for me. Hmm. All along, I knew that my failures were, uh, were catastrophic. I failed to serve society. I failed to use what I'd been given to help others. I failed to think outside of what were my selfish desires. These were my problems. And this is not a life that anybody wants to live, or at least it wasn't a life I want to live. I, who wants to think of themselves as the selfish, privileged person that they are, yet that was who I was. I tamped down all my negativity towards myself with massive quantities of drugs. The more drugs we take, oftentimes, the more selfish and shameful things we do, which leads us to tamping them down with more drugs, and the, the spiral is devastating. Fortunately, what I can look back upon is gratitude for getting out of that devastating spiral for overcoming my own devastatingly poor decisions and being able, thanks to our sisters and brothers uh, who are incarcerated and the organizations and the communities that serve them for me to contribute some part towards making our society more fair and more just. We got a long ways to go, but hopefully I'm doing some part to help us get there. That's really beautiful. And uh, Eric, I wanna, I wanna get your perspective on this. So I know that spirituality plays a really important role in your life. Um, I guess I'm just curious. Um, we talk a lot about shifting mindset, uh, more broadly speaking, just folks transitioning out of prison. And I'm wondering kind of how faith and um, how faith and, and spirituality impacted your shift of mindset and, and those that you've seen be successful coming out of prison. Uh, faith is very uh, instructive component of my world and i think a lot of uh returning citizens as well um have converted to some type of spirituality or religion really to um, elevate their self like he said most of us has the same type of motives the same type of uh, similarities 
as Ed has, um, being selfish, being um, self-centered, um, just thinking about self, sometimes not having regards for others, uh, empathy or things of that nature, and just becoming selfless. But spirituality, what spirituality has done for me has elevated me to become selfless and become um, unself-centered, uh, not thinking about myself, thinking about others, thinking about serving the communities, thinking about just helping others and being that bridge from where I was to where I want, where I like to be in my life. Um, if you call it, who you call it, Lord, God, Jesus, whoever you want to call your spiritual being, you know, I'm not one to judge um, what you use or what type of component you use for spirituality. I just know uh, for me, believing in the Lord has compelled me uh, to make a huge transition uh, that I don't know if I could have made it this far, thus far, uh, without that spiritual ground breaking breakthrough that I needed to have faith not only um, in the Lord but within myself to make this um, tremendous change. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I guess I, I'm curious to know when somebody who's uh, struggling with addiction goes to prison, typically speaking, what types of resources are available? Like how is that handled within the, the criminal justice system generally today? My, my experience is that in America, people generally do not end up incarcerated unless addiction factors in somewhere down the line. Either the, the person is struggling with addiction herself or himself, or comes from a community ravaged by addiction or has addiction in the, the family. Addiction factors in to a, a, a vast percentage of incarcerations, I feel. That's why it's so important to us as a society that we look at more effective ways to treat addiction or to manage addiction or to, to help people overcome their addictions because it benefits all of us. It's a very complex subject. Every addicted person is, has a unique story and a unique set of circumstances. As far as how it relates to incarcerated persons, the 12-step program is just the one I happen to know the best. It's certainly not the only program out there. It may not be the best, but it's, it's the one I happen to know. The 12-step program is beautiful in several ways. Number one, because it saves lives. People, you, all the time, people come into the 12 steps with one foot in the grave and one foot in a 12-step meeting and the 12 steps. It doesn't work 100% of the time. Yet it's it's very good and it's uh, it's cheap, it's uh, it's it's effective in many cases. If we can make twelve step programs available even more so than they already are within the penal system, I think that would be a great first step. There are that's that's what I did when I, the when I went to jail. I would go to I would go to twelve step meetings. I think uh, as as much. I, I do a lot of volunteering in jails. It, it's, it's a challenging, it, it's a challenging system, at least the jails I would volunteer in because of the, the protocols that are necessary to have in place, the security. I, I'm, it's certainly not my area of expertise. I think it speaks so highly to the women and men who do volunteer from the 12 step and the other communities, the faith-based communities to go into jails, because if you've ever volunteered inside a correctional facility, you, you know it's challenging. Uh, you know you can show up and the, they can be on lockdown and you've just traveled there and you've waited in the lobby and now you, you have to go home because uh, the facility's on lockdown or the, the paperwork got lost uh, and, and you, can't, you can't go in. So it's, it's challenging. If we can make, uh, if we can make volunteers, there, there are a number of people who volunteer, uh, there are a number of wonderful individuals who are willing to volunteer their time inside correctional facilities. If we can find a way to make it safe for incarcerated persons, of value for incarcerated persons, safe and of value for the correction staff, and uh, certainly easier for volunteers, I think that would be a great first step. Beautiful. That would be, I think so too. So then after, we, after you take that first step in prison, do you know of any ways or methods that 
addicted persons are redirected from prison to rehab. Um, can you speak to that at all? From my experience, the greatest challenge facing both the reentry community and community of recovering addicts or addicted people is the stigma. It's a stigma around it. Things like employment, housing, these are, are critically important. Yet, to me, overcoming the stigma will go a long ways towards solving a lot of the other problems. What we as a society, I feel, can do to best serve ourselves is eliminate that stigma around criminal history, around histories of addiction. How can we do that? One way is for people who have overcome their criminal histories and overcome their histories of addiction to be a little bit more forthcoming, okay? Doesn't mean you gotta go out on Facebook and social media and tell the world, hey, I was addicted to drugs or, or hey, I, you know, I, I have a criminal, you don't have to do that, but we can be a little bit more forthcoming. We can share our stories in spirits of mutual respect with uh, people in our immediate circles. This is what individuals who are or were incarcerated did for me. People were honest, they shared their stories in a, uh, in, and this educated me as to the backgrounds of people with criminal histories like, like me and how similar we are. When we break down those barriers of stigma, when we break down the barriers of us versus them, when we connect on a human to human level, to me that goes a long way with solving the other critically important problems, such as housing, employment, and staying sober. So is there, is there a way though, like you just talked about the responsibility that you could have, uh, uh, or speaking from an addicted person's point of view, how an addicted person can do away with the stigma, but is there something that you can ask a non-addicted person or ask of non-addicted people, how could they help um, reduce the stigma? That's a beautiful question. The first thing that comes to mind is to read books by people who have overcome their, uh, their histories of addiction. A couple jumped to mind. Uh, a woman named Mary Carr has written a couple of great books about overcoming alcoholism. Uh, another woman, uh, Elizabeth Wurzel, she unfortunately passed away recently. She wrote a great book about overcoming cocaine or uh, I think addiction to prescription pills. There are stories of transformation that when we read them, inspire us that redemption is possible. Hmm. When we know that a person can overcome addiction and not only stay clean, but contribute to society, then we as a society are much more likely to understand that second chances, whether they be second chances to a formerly incarcerated person or a formerly addicted person, second chances benefit the receiver, yet they benefit the giver just as much, sometimes even more. When we as may, a society, I chime, excuse sorry, me, may I chime in for one Please. minute? Let me interject. Uh, just thinking of some the addiction of uh, the fast money is almost is just as powerful as the addiction so one addiction to drugs if you understand what i'm saying the allure of fast easy money is, is powerful than someone addicted to drugs because you do any somebody call you three o'clock in the morning may want some type of product you you getting out your bed or whatever just to just supply to the demand so i think the power the addiction to the allure of fast money, you see with corporations or just any type of big business, just the allure and addiction of making a profit is almost just essential as someone is addicted to drugs. I, I love that. And for me, yeah, for, for me, the drug lifestyle, the drug culture was even more addictive than the drugs themselves. I loved being the guy who knew the phone number to call, like you say, at three in the morning. I knew the code words to use. I knew uh, to be the guy at the party with the little bindle with a little baggie in my pocket saying, you know, Hey, come on over to the little side room here. I, I that made me, uh, to me, that made me a person of value. It, it mm -hmm. Being immersed in that culture lifestyle, like, just like you say, Eric. Mm -hmm. 
that fast lifestyle, that, that lifestyle. Of, now I feel like a, a superhero almost, you know, in a twisted right. way. And even for young, even for young women in, in my community, they see a guy with a nice car. He can be uneducated, nice car, dressed well. I guess they're addicted to a, the power that he's possessed or the charisma that he have. Also, said so they're addicted to the drug culture. Also, I mean, I can get some money out of him, or he has money. So they're addicted to it as well. So we all have some type of addiction when the drug culture, you know, we involve this drug culture. I think all of us. Um, have some type of addiction, whether it doesn't have to be drugs, it can be addicted to the power or the fast money or the loose women or the fast cars or whatever. We develop some type of, unconsciously, we had, uh, develop some type of addiction without even knowing it. Yeah, that, that's interesting too, because I think that that speaks to uh, like answering, coming back to your question, Rye, like, you know, reading first person accounts of folks that struggle with, with really intense addiction, uh, not only can you learn about how to better serve other people, but it, if I'm hearing you all correctly, it sounds like we can learn a lot about how to be better people ourselves um, or to, to be our best selves um, in, a, in unique ways. Um, and, and I just want to add that uh, in addition to the great firsthand accounts that, that Ed mentioned, don't forget that uh, <laughs> also be sure to check out Ed's book, uh, which is another incredible first person uh, account, My Addiction and Recovery. Um, which you can find at edcressy.com. So we'll be getting into that. Uh, we'll, we'll share that again in a moment. Um, Ed, one more question about the, uh, like how to best serve addicts and we can kind of transition into speaking. Uh, I want to make sure we touch on your volunteer work specifically. Um, so I know that uh, entrepreneurship as a path for returning citizens, uh, that was what in, uh, inspired you to reach out to us uh, hearing, hearing our episode about entrepreneurship. Um, and I'm curious just kind of if you could speak on uh, how do you think of the, the power of entrepreneurship to, to uh, empower uh, folks transitioning out? And, and what does that look like with your current work with Defy Ventures, et cetera? Entrepreneurship has been a transformative means of building bridges between the incarcerated community and persons who come from realms such as Google, LinkedIn, Cisco, I have seen incredible partnerships between executives from these tech companies and other companies and persons who are or are serving time or have served time. What I've seen most of all is that entrepreneurism creates a common language. So you'll have the reentry community over here or the incarcerated community over here. You'll have a community of business executives, entrepreneurs over here. The two want to interact. They, they, they want to serve one another. They, they, want to, they, they want to connect. Yet what they lack often is a common language. Entrepreneurship gives that common language. When we think about uh, persons who are serving time, often they, they have a great deal of entrepreneurial skills. They know how to market products. They know how to manage teams. They know how to uh, create business plans, maybe not written business plans, but they know persons who are incarcerated oftentimes have a lot of business skills. Because of the way our society works, the skills are, have often been applied to what we call illegitimate endeavors, meaning illegal. Yet when we take those same skills and apply them to legitimate enterprises, we see some remarkable successes. There's a guy, uh, Cost Marte, who served, I forget how much time he served. He was in New York, uh, marijuana. He was very, he got very sick when he was serving time or he was very close to being, because he, his physical condition was so poor. He was, he was overweight in his nutrition. Cost, while he was serving time, taught himself uh, fitness routines. It just while, while he was inside, he not only lost a lot of weight, but he took his passion for fitness, his entrepreneurial skills, which came from selling marijuana. When he was released, he, took, he participated in Defy Ventures. Cost ended up doing some work for the New York Yankees. He ended up uh, participating on Saturday Night Live, I'm pretty sure. He's in uh, his, he's got a, he's got an outfit called uh, Con Body, which is a, a workout facility where you use body weight exercises. 
and he's in, uh, I forget which of the department stores in Manhattan, but, but one of the well-known ones. And he's, so, got, he's got a book out. I mean, he's, he's doing it all. Really yeah. Nobody's yeah. ever said anything negative about a con body. Costa's <laughs> 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 story is just one of many. Costa's maybe one of the more well-known ones, but we've seen, uh, we've seen so many women and men transform themselves and transform those around them by applying their natural and or learned entrepreneurial skills to legitimate enterprises. Sometimes all they need is that coaching, that common language, and the opportunities that a guy like me, a privileged white guy, just took for granted and that society bestows upon someone like me. When we give everybody these same opportunities, what we'll find, what I've seen is that you know, I, I, I often think of uh, Pelican Bay State Prison, which is one of the most notorious state prisons in California. I was fortunate to have spent two weekends there as a volunteer coach, sitting down with it. If you're in Pelican Bay, if you're incarcerated there, you have almost certainly been convicted of a violent crime, murder in many cases. If you're serving time in Pelican Bay, you are almost certainly gang affiliated. I've sat down with these guys and, and come away certain that if they'd been given the same opportunities as me, they would have turned out fine. They would have turned out fine. These, and to, just to be clear, th these are men who have self-selected as applying themselves to transformational programs of entrepreneurism and employment. So they don't necessarily represent the entire population of Pelican Bay State Prison. I've seen enough to, to believe that if we as society give the same opportunities to everyone, it's going to help. It's, it's truly going to transform our, our society. And again, these things might seem obvious to say, but until a person really lives it and experiences it the way I've been given the opportunity to, it doesn't necessarily become as real. It's real to me. Thanks to, uh, thanks to the opportunities I've had. Yeah. And, and Eric, I guess I just was hoping you could elaborate quickly as somebody who formerly channeled your entrepreneurial uh, inclinations into selling drugs um, and paid the price for that. I'm, I'm curious just kind of to, to hear your quick perspective on uh, how, how you, I don't know, what, how you shifted that mindset and skills into how you approach uh, life today. Uh, I concur with, uh, with Ed uh, wholeheartedly. Most individuals who's gone to prison or become who have became incarcerated for selling any type of product has entrepreneurial skills, whether they know it or not. Um, because it's been happenstance. Uh, I knew guys without GEDs can count money faster than an accountant. <laughs> so <laughs> I think those skills, um, just by habit, just by culture, just by way of survival, I think you develop those type of skills um, and they're transferable skills into the um, business world today. So what I've done, what I have did and have and continues doing is, is do a lot of reading and do a lot of study and doing a lot of research and just doing a lot of network, which uh, my friend Jacob Smith had taught me. So <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Like the skills, like Ed said, the skills are transferable. If we just had the same opportunities, the same resources, and the same social economic status that he's accustomed to, uh, I think we all, you know, we all have a chance for uh, being successful uh, the right way, legal way. I think that that comes back to, I think I touched on this uh, earlier, like spreading opportunity. So, uh, you know, for folks listening who are, are looking for ways to, you know, how can I get involved helping uh, folks in this situation, uh, think about ways that you can create opportunities. If you're in a position to create jobs, you know, hire people. If you're in a position to uh, vouch for somebody, to, to donate, to whatever the case may be, how can you, from a position of relative security, privilege, whatever the case may be, how can you uh, help spread it around? Absolutely. And, and realize it benefits you. There's a great uh, TED talk by a friend. It's a TEDx talk by a friend of mine, Shelly Winner. Shelly served about a year in federal prison on meth charges. After release, she got hired by Microsoft. Now she works for Microsoft. She's doing very, very well. 
She's paved the way for other formerly incarcerated persons, I believe, to also work at Microsoft. Her TEDx talk was on why hiring the formerly incarcerated is good for your teams and good mm. for your business. Shifting the focus onto not only how much criminal justice reform helps the returning citizen community, but how much it helps the business community mm. and society. You know, lo looking at how, how much, I, I feel that formerly incarcerated persons represent the most under, one of the most underutilized resources in America. It's a, a, a vast, incredibly valuable pool of resources that we don't tap into anywhere near as much as we should to benefit not so much or not only people who've, who are returning as citizens, but those who hire them, those who welcome them into their communities, those who allow them or us, I should say, allow us to volunteer for nonprofits. It's just a incredible opportunity that we have. And fortunately, it's an opportunity that more and more businesses and nonprofits are taking advantage of. We still have a long way to go. Fortunately, we got amazing individuals such as yourselves. We got incredible organizations, organizations such as the five ventures. We've got a lot of committed people at places like Google and LinkedIn and Cisco and other companies. This is a, a problem that is getting higher up or is getting uh it's a problem that more people are recognizing. Still, we have a long ways to go. Fortunately, we have incredible individuals blazing the, the trail and, and the three of you absolutely represent that. So question for me would be, for somebody who is currently struggling, a, a, a current addicted person, is there any type of advice you would give them right now, Ed, as far as resources are concerned? Or you know, what would you say to those people right now? if you could elaborate on, uh, on that. God, per pursue a path of spirituality. Consider what spirituality does and doesn't mean to you. Pursuing spirituality doesn't necessarily mean being like other people who are spiritual. Per pursuing spirituality means getting in contact with that that higher power or that higher purpose or that supreme being or whatever it is you choose to contemplate and or accept as a spiritual presence in your life. Mm -hmm. If there, and these, these are only my beliefs. If there is such a thing as God, God is within us. God doesn't make hard term, hard terms with those of us who, who seek God. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if we're a good person, if we're, if we're being the best person we can by our own definition, if we define being a good person as being compassionate or empathetic or of service, I don't feel God necessarily cares so much whether we do it under the banner of Christianity or Judaism or Islam or some other faith-based organization or, or nothing faith-based. It's very important, at least to me, for any individual struggling with addiction to understand drugs ain't your problem. Drinking's not your problem. Gambling's not your problem. Those are your attempts at a solution. You have got to find a very powerful solution. And spirituality is, is one, it's not the only, but it's one of those powerful solutions that can help you overcome your problem. Hmm. Pursue that spirituality and you may well find that not only can you overcome your addiction, you can discover a beautiful life that you've never even dreamed of on the other side. And I'll, uh, I'll add, we're recording this podcast on the first night of Hanukkah. Um, and there is uh, a lot of different metaphors and, and different things that they come into play, but uh, the celebration of Hanukkah kind of centers around seeking light in the darkness um, and playing around with these types of themes of uh, even in the darkest moment, uh, the, the light is still shining. Um, so seeking out that light and, and sharing, you know, you, you 
you, you light another candle and, and both candles are, are lit. You don't give anything up by spreading your shine, uh, spreading light. So yeah, as we kind of uh, look to wrap up, I want to just make sure that we get the plug in uh, one more time. So uh, Ed has some great content online. You can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Ed, but I think edcressy.com seems to be the, the move. You can find the link to buy the book. Uh, that's E-D-K-R-E-S-S-Y.com. Uh, you could find the, the link to buy My Addiction and Recovery, Ed's book, see some of the articles that he's written, as well as a, a video of some of his storytelling. So um, definitely encourage everybody to, to look into Ed's work and kind of to, to supplement uh, what, you, what you heard here today. And then also just want to mention, we, we, dis- we discussed um, Defy Ventures, a program that we're huge fans of that we haven't had a chance to actually highlight yet. Uh, the podcast. So excited to get into that a bit. We're, we're going to have to do an episode where we just dive deep into Defy Ventures. Uh, would love to have you back, Ed, to, to talk in, in detail about that work. Uh, maybe bring some of the, some of the folks that uh, work with you over there. Um, and that's D-E-F-Y, defyventures.org. Um, and we'll, again, include all the links um, everywhere that you're, you might be listening to this, um, and certainly at thereturningcitizen.org. Um, so with that, I was wondering, uh, Ed, did you have any final thoughts you wanted to leave us with? Any final nuggets of wisdom or anything? Any final thoughts? Stay strong. Put your faith in God or, or a higher power. Be of service to others. Pray for, pray for strength and healing, not only for yourselves, not only for yourselves, but for uh, those less fortunate and you will find that with faith in the spiritual, you can find your way out of some of the most hopeless seeming circumstances. It's been true for me. It can be true for you also. Hmm. That's fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ed, for being here. We really, really appreciate not only your time, but also just your honesty and your vulnerability. Uh, that is not easy to do especially given the, the different situations you've experienced. Um, we really, really appreciate you coming on today and sharing your perspective. Thank, Thank you. you it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, you forgot to share that you are also a comedian. You, ain't <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, have the, you can't have that attribute. Eh? All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw you getting down on the moth. I was right, right. <laughs> Oh, thank you. That that was fun on the moth. Ready to see your Netflix. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for your, uh, your incredible work. You are truly inspirational. You're shining lights.